two weeks ago, <clears throat> we studied about Jesus being challenged by his enemies. I think that's probably something we're not terribly surprised at. I mean, after all, what do enemies do? Hardly an enemy, they don't ever challenge you. But today we're going to look at those who were challenging to him just as often. And those are his friends. Jesus had a number of challenging friends. Of course, when we say that today, but we say we have challenging friends or co-workers. We often use that as a euphemism for dysfunctional, difficult, negative type people. So were some of Jesus' friends. Uh, we find that, as we look at the scripture, Jesus dealt with people as they were. Uh, he dealt with people who were in great sin, calling them from that. And he dealt with people and, and put people to use on the basis sometimes of what they would be, not as the basis as they currently were. And so we find that he often had some very challenging friends. It's these people that he intentionally sought to be his friends. Uh, he was charged by his enemies. Of course, again, we studied about their hindrances last time on this topic. But uh, his enemies charged him with doing that. Yeah, Luke seven twenty four, 24, uh, Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say... Behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Well, he certainly was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Uh, that's the uh, incident that uh, the grumbling about that brings him to later talk about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. But he wasn't just an associate, with, uh, an associate of theirs. As they were lightly, as they were going about sin, and he was lightly treating it. Someone said, and I wrote it down a long time ago, and I forget from where, but I'll read it from another source, even if I can't remember where that source was, where they said that Jesus was a friend of sinners, not because he winked at sin, ignored sin, or enjoyed lighthearted revelry with those engaged in immorality. Jesus was a friend of sinners in that he came to save sinners. And was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel. I'll repeat that last line again. I like it so much. That he was a friend of sinners and that he came to save sinners and was very pleased to welcome sinners who were open to the gospel. And aren't we glad that he was? On what other basis are we here? Then we are sinners who are pleased, I hope, to hear the gospel. In Romans 5, it describes it this way. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus had these challenging people around him. And one of the things that is evident throughout the Gospels is that with these challenging people surrounding him, they were put in close proximity to each other, which they otherwise would not have been. And thus they became challenging at times to each other. In Mark 10, we find among the closest inner circle of his disciples, we find James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Mark 10, 35. And they said, teacher, 
we want you to do whatever we ask. Well, I'd like to say that too. Hey, hey, Steve, I'd like for you to do whatever I ask. Well, Steve would be a fool to say, of course, because well, what, what might I ask for? You know me, I might ask for quite a lot. I might ask for something quite inconvenient. I might ask for something that's quite selfish. Well, they said, we'd like for you to give us an unlimited favor. He said, well, what, would, what is it? What would you like? And they said, grant that when you sit in your glory, in your kingdom, verse 37, that we get to sit one on your right and one on your left. And he said, you don't even know what you're asking for. He said, to sit on my right or left, that's not mine to give, but it is for those who've been prepared. And then it says, hearing this and knowing that James and John, very certainly cousins of Jesus, trying to use family connections and most likely having brought their mother into it to ask Jesus as a special favor for her boys. But it says that the ten became indignant with James and John. They became indignant with each other. With each other. Imagine apostles so mad at each other they can't hardly see straight. They can't deal with each other civilly. They challenged each other because they were challenging people. They also challenged at times Jesus. In Luke 9 and Luke 22 it tells us it was a continual fight amongst them as to who would be regarded as the greatest. Who would be the greatest. So these people challenge each other and certainly it is that they do challenge and they exasperate and even anger Jesus and yet still they are his friends they challenge exasperate and even anger Jesus but here's the great grace of God that these remained his friends for whom he died we find about those Type in Mark 9, here's a man who's come to Jesus for help. Here's a man who, in asking Jesus for his help, he says, well, if you could help, knowing the power of Jesus, he says, if you could help. This was a man who was in a dire situation, and so we might have a little sympathy for him. Mark 9, 17, one of the crowd said, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed of a spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. You can just imagine the disciples going, we told you not to bring that up. What, what do you, somebody should have got him out of here. Jesus answered, oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. That, that is the voice of exasperation. How long shall I put up with you? Okay, bring him here. You ever heard anybody in charge say something like that? A boss or a teacher or a parent or somebody? You know that this is not going to go well because somebody's reached the end. Now, their patience, yet Jesus here is showing the patience we ought to have. He says, bring him here. The spirit who they are dealing with threw the boy immediately into a convulsion making it worse, and Jesus said to the father, how long has it been this way? And he said, well, from childhood. Often he's thrown him down, and he's trying to throw him in the water to destroy him. And then the father says, but if you can do anything, but if you can. And Jesus picks up on that in verse 23. He says, but if you can, that's how you come asking me? But if you can do anything, take pity and help us. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. 
And immediately the boy's father cried out again and began to say, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe. Help my unbelief. That is the place where we sometimes find ourselves. We believe in Jesus, but we need to believe anymore and we know it. We, we sometimes ask in this way, if you can. We're exasperated. We're angry with this situation. Lord, if you can help us. Lord, if you're willing to help us, help us. Jesus says, you're showing signs of unbelief here. Why, why do I need to put up with this? But he also says, bring the boy here to me. And he healed him. He said, you deaf, dumb spirit, I command you, come out, don't enter him again. Crying out, throwing him into terrible convulsions, he came out. The boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand and raised him, and he got up. I think about what, what a terrible, terrible situation this boy has had to endure and his father had to endure with him. And Jesus, as he approaches Jesus, has been overwhelmed by requests to help. He's been made tired by the constant battles he's had with people. He's at the end of his own strength here. And yet, what does he do? He helps. Even when we have challenging, exasperating people, those who brought Jesus to anger, because this is, I mean, it's not the most angry you ever see Jesus in the Gospels, but it, it is one of the times we do see that side of Jesus, because there are things and there are people in this world that are bad enough to make Jesus angry and exasperated. And yet, what did he do? He did help, and he brought the solution. He helped them in their affliction. And so sometimes we are that overwhelmed person. Circumstances have so overwhelmed us, and we've dealt with a bad situation for so long. It seems like it can't go on, and our, our request to God to help almost sounds as much like a complaint as an ask. And yet, when done in faith... What did this man find? Now, on our next one, we find it's the apostles who are seeking assurance. Though they knew him the best of anybody on earth and had spent the most time with him, this is after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and were drawn off to the wilderness to pray. And he set the apostles to go back home by way of the boat. And we know that it had been a difficult uh, journey by boat they hadn't made very much progress as they were rowing against the wind we we know this is all four gospels are put together and in that in the middle of the night in Ma uh, Matthew 14 26 Jesus came walking by on the water as you do you know well, as you do if you're the son of God you come walking by on the water and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea they were frightened saying it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, these are not, you know, uninformed and superstitious men, right? They, these people saw more miracles than any other human being ever, right? These people have seen Jesus and are recognizing daily the power of Jesus. And yet still, this is something so beyond comprehension that they cannot even think that it's him. And there's a ghost walking by, maybe closing on the boat, 
because we know he came walking by very near the boat. And there's a ghost closing in on us. And I think we've all seen that movie. There's a ghost coming, crawling in it. But in the night and in the storm, in their tired hours, they're crying out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, the same Peter that we mentioned in Bible class this morning and at the Lord's Supper table with the great statement of faith two chapters on. Here he says, Lord, if it's you, Lord, if it's you, could you give us a little confirmation that it's you? We need to make sure it's not some ghost or something else. Lord, if it's you, command me to come, on, come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink. And he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Why did they doubt it was anybody but Jesus? Why did he doubt that if Jesus had told him you could walk on the water, you could? And I firmly believe that if Jesus told us to walk on the water, I think we could. He hadn't told us that, so don't try. And if you do, try in something that no more than waist deep, please. But he assures them. He assures them repeatedly. And here, the Lord, if it's you, and Lord, save me, these are cries for assurance. These are cries for help that Jesus immediately answers. And so, sometimes, at times where you think, why does he need assurance now? Doesn't he know by now? Isn't he strong enough yet? These, need, these times of need of assurance creep up. The, their motivation here is not to mock or to destroy, like some who challenge Jesus. It's, it's asking to be led. It's asking for help. And when people sincerely do that, even if by every appearance to us it would seem like, well, why do they need that still? He gives it to them. And there's no defensiveness or rudeness on his part. There's only timeless, there's only timely help. I can imagine some of us where somebody else asks us to help them, to assure them, and we answer, not this way, not, of course, and here's your help, but we answer, oh, really, you need that? I'm, I'm a little busy, or seriously, we, we get sarcastic, we get snippy, we get snarky. Jesus just gives them the assurance that they need. At other times, though they were exasperating yet again to Jesus, where they knew the details of a thing, but they had missed the point. They didn't get the lesson that they should have, even though they had all the pieces with them. I think about that sometimes whenever we study Bible topics. and Boy, we, we know, you know several verses of it, and we know quite a few facts and phrases from the Scripture, yet we, we, you know, we're as helpless in front of sometimes these uh, pieces of scripture as a child in front of a puzzle. You ever seen a little child in front of a simple puzzle? I mean, we can see it across the room how those two puzzles fit together, right? But they just can't see it. They haven't learned. Or sometimes at the, at the nursing home or the assisted living center, they'll have large uh, puzzles out where people can, can uh, you know, pass the time and, 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 and converse while putting the puzzle together. And 
and the challenge of putting the puzzles together uh, also helps them mentally. Uh, but if you go back in a couple of weeks, that puzzle's still there, and it doesn't look like much progress has been made. It's like, why is this puzzle taking so long? Just, it's not that hard. Well, it is for them. And so knowledge makes arrogant. And so it is we sometimes, by, by, by knowing more than somebody else, we despise them or we put them down. But we note here that the apostles, they had a lot of facts, but not the point. Mark 8, he was giving orders to them saying, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. What? They discussed what based on that? Well, he said leaven, and leaven's about bread, and we don't have any bread, and the last couple of times we haven't had bread, he fed the 5,000, he's going to do, you know. I'm sure there's all kinds of things I could think of what Jesus had done, what Jesus might be doing now. And he said, no, 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 let's start over. Verse 17, why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? The obvious answer was no. Do you have a hardened heart? Oh, that's... I thought I just didn't understand. Do you think I didn't understand because I have a hardened heart? Quoting Isaiah, having eyes you do not see and having ears you do not hear. And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said 12. And when I broke the, for the, sev- uh, the seven for 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. And he said, then, do you not understand? No. There's no way, he says, I could have been talking about physical bread. I can make that on the spot. I've done it repeatedly. That's not what I was giving you a warning about. I was warning you about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, the leaven of Herod, which is also power and hypocrisy and worldly, worldly thinking. You guys, you got the details of the miracles, but you didn't get the point of the miracles, and you still haven't got what's important. At other times, they saw and didn't even know what it was that they were seeing in John 14. In John 14, they'd, they'd been with Jesus for years. They'd seen him, as John would say in his epistle, what we saw, what we touched, what we handled concerning the word of life. They had fully been with him, and that they still hadn't got it. John 14, 6, so Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you know him, and have seen him. He said, if you would have known me, I was with you for these years, and you, hadn't, you didn't know me while I was with you, and Philip then proves the point, said, Lord, show us the Father, it's enough. Have I been so long with you that you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? They didn't get that, that they were seeing God in the flesh. They didn't get that, that as, as the Father uh, would do, that's what Jesus actually had done with them. They, they still hadn't got what and who it was that was with them even though they'd confessed him as the Son of God by faith, even as they had stood by Jesus in trials and temptations, well, except for that one night they all fled, but they mostly came back. They hadn't got it yet, have it been so long. And so Jesus continues then to teach and to explain. 
By this time, I might have said, look, um, I know you 12 have been here with me through most of my trials, but we have some alternate apostles. I'd like to excuse some of y'all and bring them in. You know, they, they, they did that the other day. They had a, had a big trial and they had alternate jurors ready to stand in. But man, if there were any alternate apostles, wouldn't it have been about time to bring them in? Somebody who'd paid attention and somebody who'd gotten it. But there wasn't. Even at this late date, Jesus is still out there with them, convincing them, giving them reasons to believe. Even though, at various times, these guys like to even tell Jesus he was wrong. Remember when Jesus had first brought up the idea of his suffering, which in John 14, he's just a day from. But in Mark 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was stating the matter plainly. So yes, there are times when it was veiled. Yes, there are sometimes it's prophecy that we have to uh, uh, kind of untangle a little bit. We have to see some connections. But it says here, he's telling them plainly. And so Peter took him aside because Peter's a nice guy. Peter cares for Jesus and his reputation. Peter doesn't want to be untoward, so he's going to correct him privately. If you need to correct somebody, that's a good place to start. He takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. So Peter was rebuking the Lord. And here the, the Lord turned in front of them all and rebuked him back. He said, no, this is God's plan. This is the way this is going to go. Can you imagine if you were laying out a, a gospel plan, a godly plan, a right plan of action for anything, for your family, uh, for your, uh, yourself and your, your, your wife, uh, for your uh, family, for a congregation, and after laying out the thing of things of God, somebody got up and rebuked you for that. Wouldn't you just be about be done with that person? And they're not going to be part of this plan anymore. They're not going to get to participate. We're going to just, you know, do it without them. Because to avoid conflict so often, isn't that our best plan? Let's just work around them. Let's just do without them. They can do their own thing. We'll do ours. Well, no, he rebukes Peter, gets Peter on board. And... He still worked with Peter, though Peter rebuked him for clearly revealing the plan of God. Another time, and I think this may have upset Jesus the most, and these are not the only ones, but one more to summarize it. They hindered the people bringing the children to Jesus. Of all the times that Jesus was the apostles, uh, seems to be the angriest, and the strongest wording is used. It's when they were hindering people to come to Jesus. I don't know if they were saying the master's too busy or they were putting them all in a really long line that they would never get to the end of. If they were being rude to these people, I don't know what they were doing, but they were hindering. And man, hindering people to come to Jesus, that's got to be one of the worst things a disciple can do. But we've seen it done, haven't we? Haven't we seen people who are hindrances to others coming to Jesus? Mark 10, 13, and they were bringing their children to him so he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. 
When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, permit the children to come to me. Don't hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He was indignant and he rebuked them. And especially when we hinder the young. Because the young, they, have, they may have more days in the kingdom to come certainly than we do. The kingdom has always been for the innocent. The kingdom has always been for those who are coming to be faithful. We're never to discourage them. And Jesus was indignant when they did. And you got to think, these are his friends. These were not his enemies keeping the children from Jesus, but his friends. Yet, these guys, they are still the friends that Jesus dies for. You think about it in our life, I know we've all shed some friends along the way. But what if we shed our friends when they were disappointments to us? What if we shed our friends when they acted contrary to what we thought they and we ought to be doing? What if, what if our friends upset us and so, well, that's it for the friendship? You, you, you know people who lightly jettison friends? What does the proverb say? Don't, don't neglect your friend or your father's friends, right? There are some multi-generational friendships, and the Proverbs tells us to respect them. Well, here, these are still the friends, after all that, that Jesus dies for. This is his great love. John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. We read all that in the Gospels. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. If you're, if you're a disciple of Jesus, in spite of whatever faults of the past, and probably we might say, whatever faults of the future, because we look at the lives of these apostles, and can't we point out errors that are still coming? Because we know the chronology of their lives through the entirety of the gospel record. We know that some of these guys have, pro- have, have errors and pro- faults and problems still coming. But these people on the whole love the Lord and follow him, and they repent when they're wrong. And that's the best we could be as well. And so Jesus said, you're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. For a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you my friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. So I've, I've treated you as friends, as equals, even though he's the son of God. He is God on the earth, but they're his friends on earth. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give you this. I command you that you love one another. All right, guys, I've been here and you've loved me and I've loved you and I have showed myself everything and I have made you my friends, but I'm not going to be here to reference these things anymore. You need to love each other directly. I'm going to die for you. And he would the next day from this statement here of John 15. And he asked them now to love one another, to be intentional and purposeful in their love and to not strike each other off the list because they have these conflicts. They shouldn't have these conflicts, but when they do, they should solve them in love. And what we find as we go through 
that Jesus died for the friends that he's entrusted to us and has entrusted us to them. There's a mutual trust that he's given each other, a mutual encouragement, a mutual responsibility so that we find in Romans 14, for instance, in verse 13, therefore do not judge one another anymore. That would have solved some of these problems we just read of the gospel stories. Don't judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks it unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Here he's talking about some liberty that's given in Christ, liberty in relation to things that were bound up in the law, regulations of food and drink and days and various things. And Jesus said, your, your main obligation is to show love for your brother and not challenge him over these things of practice that he said, I, I, I no longer care for and, and don't make important in the gospel. The, the kingdom is not eating and drinking, this chapter would say, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And yet here were these brethren who were exasperating and challenging each other, probably bringing each other anger, causing a stumbling block by their actions. And yet, what was the instruction? It was not to judge, but it was to receive. Romans 15, 1. Now you who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves, as Jesus did on every page of the gospel. Let us... Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and for his edification, for not even Christ did please himself, as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach thee fell upon me. And so when we see the action of Jesus, when people are challenging, exasperating, angering, but that is not just to let us know what Jesus did. It is for that to know that he was perfect and that he was instructive and that he uh, was the son of God in the flesh. But those things are also then a great moral lesson example for us and what we ought to do. As he loved, we love. As he taught, he, we should teach. As he tried to improve people's lives and he had great, much greater tools and powers to do so than we do, but we still have responsibility as we ought and as we can. Jesus sought their good because he loved them. And having loved us and redeemed us and having loved another and redeemed another, he gives us a mutual obligation of love to each other. And so when Jesus challenges enemies, we, we can all appreciate that and be glad that he stood firm. When Jesus was challenged by his friends, he was kind and conciliatory and he was gentle. And we should and can't appreciate that and imitate that likewise. So, Jesus, challenging Jesus. He was challenged by his enemies. He was challenged by his friends. Proved in all things to be the Son of God and do the thing that was beneficial most for us. Uh, let's find in that some lesson uh, of our morality and our ethics. And let's also find in that great reason to praise God and thank him for this grace that's shown in Jesus Christ. And all those examples show just how really unworthy we were of it, but how gracious it is that he gives it.